Hello and welcome to the Metrospective presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. I'm Ted Berg, joined as always in Zoom conference by the Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton. And Tim, after an exciting Mets win, a rare come-from-behind win on Tuesday, the Mets unfortunately could not play a game on Wednesday night. It didn't happen. I, I tried to watch it. I turned it on, and, and it was mysteriously just... It was just like static on my TV. Yeah, yeah. No game Wednesday. Usually they play games on Wednesdays. Usually you don't have a day off in the middle of a series. But, you know, they decided not to play on Wednesday. And the Mets are still riding high off of Tuesday's come-from-behind win, right? That, that's, how we're, that's what we're going with? That is, uh, unfortunately, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's our fantasy. In, in the real world, the Mets allowed 20 runs, which is, I mean, it's, it's sort of like demoralizing to watch and and you got to imagine demoralizing to just like slog through that game if you're a member of the team but it's it's one game it's not that big of a deal but the um there were some you know some some things that came to light in that game and most notably david peterson leaving with a right side issue that sort of he was off to a a a bad start to begin with but then uh, now it sounds like he's gonna miss some time yeah so uh, Mike Puma of the New York Post reporting uh, earlier. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon. So, so Mike reported Thursday morning that you know the, the Mets don't know kind of the full extent of, of what's going on with Peterson, that he's going to get checked when they get back to New York on Friday, but that they've already committed to him not making his next start. Uh, and, and you know on Wednesday night after the game, the fact that, that Peterson wasn't there on site with the team to talk about it. Like, you know, the Mets have had several pitchers leave starts early with injuries this season. DeGrom's done it three times. Stroman's done it uh, the, the one time. Taiwan Walker did it one time. Uh, but in each of those instances, the, the pitcher was still there after the game to talk about his start and what had happened. Uh, and Peterson wasn't because he was getting tests. So that suggested already that this was a little bit more serious uh, than what, what the previous pitchers had, had gone through. And I know, you know, there's going to be people listening to this who think, well, whatever, it's Peterson. He's not that good anyway. Uh, and first of all, like, you know, he had pitched really well for several starts going into uh, Wednesday night. And, and yes, he's an inconsistent pitcher. He is up and down. He's also in his second year in the major leagues. And that's what you're going to get a lot of time out of pitchers with his experience level. Uh, and, you know, the other options that they have right now are not better than David Peterson. They're, you know, the, the idea like, well, you know, no one can be worse than he was last night. Well, look at the list of the pitchers who pitched after him. Um, right. You know, Sean Reed Foley was worse. I uh, mean, think, think back to Jared Eikhoff's outing a few, you know, a few nights ago and, and, uh, and how much worse that could have been ultimately in the stat line. Like, like think about what the, if you want to think about what the replacement looks like, it's, it's uh, every member of the Washington Nationals lineup hitting 120 mile an hour liners. <laughs> Yeah, so the you know it it maybe accelerates the Mets process. Uh, you know, depending on the severity of the injury, whether it is missing a start or two. You know, if it's if it's basically he's out uh, through the All Star break or something, but you feel good about him coming back uh, in two weeks after that point, uh, then you know you, you don't need to get someone in here here and now. But if if he's going to be out uh, for a more extended period of time, and now you're looking at okay, you've got uh, Degrom, Stroman, Walker. Uh, and Tyler McGill as your top four. If, if Tyler McGill is your four, uh, and you don't really have a, a number five, if, that, if the five is Zapucky, or if it's if it's Ikoff coming back on a deal uh, and not getting claimed or anything like that, um, if it's waiting for Jordan Yamamoto, who I don't think he's going to be ready in the next couple of weeks, um, you know the 
that maybe accelerates your timeline uh, in the month of July. Okay, we, we're going to need a starter anyway. We might as well get that person now uh, and maybe overpay a little bit for it. Yeah, I mean, they're they're at a spot where they need to... The, the, the lead that we've been talking about in the National League East for the entire season, basically, uh, shrinks ever slimmer as they sort of middle through this month. And uh, it does feel like there is an, an urgent, increasingly urgent need uh, in that starting rotation, not just because, as you mentioned, the Casey is down and Peterson is down, but also because I don't think it's it's reasonable to expect the t- same type of production from the front end of the starting rotation. And so just you know, having that that reinforcement uh, would be obviously valuable to this team. But um, I want to get into some of the potential trade targets because you have a great column about it in The Athletic today. Uh, just a needling little question, and so, because someone's going to ask this, um, and and uh, while there's you know all these all these injuries in the starting rotation, Jerry's Familia is now uh, rehabbing in Syracuse. Seems like he is just about ready to come back. The bullpen we know has, has still largely been good. It's not it hasn't been as as great as it was at the beginning of the year, um, but it certainly feels like a stronger unit right now than the back end of that starting rotation. Do you think they give any consideration? at all to to stretching out Seth Lugo final I mean I, I think you you think about it um but it's not like it takes time it's not something they can do you know they tried to do it on the fly last year um with him and with uh Robert Gazelman and obviously it did not work out with Gazelman uh and he was coming off an injury and and Lugo is also coming off an injury uh, mm-hmm. So it, I feel like it's a little bit more precarious to do. I'm, I'm looking back at last year. He made his first start on August 25th. Uh, by his third start, he was giving you five innings, and the, the fourth start, he was going 90 pitches. So it, it takes probably three weeks of him pitching uh, in major league games to get up to where he's like a full-fledged starter. Uh, and I just, you know, I don't know that you can assume he's going to be as effective uh, I think the bullpen, one of the reasons it's worked well of late is that uh, having Lugo there allows you to get through a period where one of your other main relievers is not pitching well. Right now, Miguel Castro mm-hmm. is not pitching all that well. Right. Uh, two weeks ago, Trevor May wasn't pitching all that well. Uh, but right. you're able to, you know, it doesn't have to be Castro, May, Diaz every night. You've got Lugo as, you know, it can be May, Lugo, Diaz. It can be Castro, Lugo, Diaz. It can be, you know, you can, you can move it around a little bit uh, w- with having that extra guy down there. So I think he's really valuable. You know, if, for instance, it's a lot easier for them to trade for a reliever uh, than it is for a starter, if, if you can get a really good reliever uh, for not very much, um, and, you, you, you know, starters are going to cost more than that in terms of prospects, and you feel good about Carlos Carrasco and or Noah Syndergaard coming back eventually to be your number four starter, well, then you can think about it a little bit more seriously, um, taking the hit uh, in the short term with starting Lugo uh, and seeing where he can go with it. I, I don't think it's clearly off the table, but I think uh, you probably have to f- have good secondary plans with it to pull it off. Uh, like last year, they, they didn't. Um, and uh, right. that's why it didn't really work. Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, and, and I would lean toward not wanting them to do that just because Lugo is, is so good at the bullpen and, and I love the, the fact that he can go multiple innings. I can be like a, the, the quality of a dominant setup man, but also give you, a, you know, two or three if, if necessary. 
um, especially like those two inning outings. But um, I almost just kind of want for his sake. It seems like he's still pretty invested in becoming a starter down the road at some point. And uh, I don't know, he's really good. Like, you know, you kind of want to see someone give the guy a chance. But I think more realistically, um, they need to be looking at the trade market. And you have taken a long look at the trade market. Who there's this and it's a long look. Uh, and, and you went through a number of candidates, several of which I want to highlight. But if I'm, if there is one guy I should want, I should be like, this is the dude the Mets need to be trading for. If I'm going to call WFAN tomorrow and start making demands, who should I ask about? Like, do my homework for me. Yeah, I think I think Shohei Otani, Mike Trout. No, um, uh, in terms <laughs> well, of well, Otani, no, Otani can't pitch in New York. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Um, he could he could be a, a good good rotation option and help the offense. Um, I think in terms of uh, pitchers who are going to be a, who who might be moved, the best one is probably Jose Barrios uh, in Minnesota. He's a guy who uh, you know is under team control through next season as well through 2022, which is why Minnesota might not move him. Obviously, this season has gone horribly wrong for them. Um, I actually haven't checked if they. I know they they've been playing better, but I don't think they're back in it. That that division is actually you know the White Sox are better. I think most people expected Minnesota is still 13 and a half out and 12 and a half out in the wild card. So still 12 under 500. Uh, so not not playing well enough to really get themselves back into uh, contention there. Um, and so they, they, they've got the guy, they've got like the easy sell off pieces, uh, you know, Jay Happ or Michael Pineda, who's another guy that we can talk about as a, as a rental who probably won't cost too much, uh, but could fit in for the Mets. Uh, you know they've got those types of guys, getting, and then they have to dis- decide whether to trade. Getting bags for sticky stuff before it was cool. Michael, Michael Pineda, right? Like <laughs> right. Long yeah. Before it was cool, Pineda was a pine tar guy. Um, and then you, you can decide. Uh, they they have to decide whether you know is Barrios a guy that they can re-sign, or is that someone they should also look to move when his value is high uh, and his short-term value to them is minimized because they're not competitive this season. Uh, I think you know the. The trade you would compare it to is kind of one the Mets have done. It's it's for Marcus Stroman in 2019. Uh, Stroman was in a very similar spot. He he had made the All Star team as as a Blue Jay in 2019. Uh, he had a year and a half le- left of control uh, at that point. The Blue Jays were out of it that year, but were building towards something relatively quickly. Um, and so the Mets made the deal uh, with Anthony Kay, who was a near ready major league pitching prospect for you know back end starter type. Uh, kind of on the fringes of, of the, the top 100 consensus prospect lists. And then Simeon Woods Richardson, who was farther away. I think he was in A-ball at the time, uh, but a recent second-round pick who had a, a pretty good ceiling uh, that you thought would get there in a few years. I think Barrios probably costs a little bit more. Um, that, that was, I, I thought, a decent price for Stroman. I thought the Mets did well in terms of what they gave up. Uh, I, my problem was the other things they did or did not do at that trade deadline. But... Uh, I think with Barrios, you're looking probably at, you know, since the Twins could use a, a pitcher to replace him in the, their 2022 rotation, you're going to be talking about, okay, who do the Mets have that fits that? That is Peterson. Uh, if the Twins like him, that's Thomas Zapucky. If the Twins like him, that's Tyler McGill. That's guys who are currently, you know, on your major league staff in your rotation uh, would probably be part of the ask back for Minnesota. And then it's one of your top eight prospects, probably. That that grouping that goes, you know, with, with Alvarez and Maurice. You're not going to trade one of the, the very top guys, but, you know, a guy like JT Ginn is probably in that conversation uh, from the Twins' perspective. They would want an arm like that back uh, for Barrios 
which you know I think is a little bit higher than the cost for Strowman. Uh, but Barrios is uh, probably a little bit you know his stat he's a little bit more desirable just because of the way he pitches. Strowman as a sinker baller I think is kind of underrated by the industry. Uh, as we talked about when we talked about his potential contract, uh, and that's why he kind of went for less than I think most people expected at that time. Yeah, Barrios has like the very much like the the sort of ace like presence to him. You know, uh, he's always a, he's a he's a really fun guy to watch pitch too, uh, much like Strowman in that way. But it, it comes about it in a different way. Um, also, I mean, really good. I'm looking up JT Ginn now. Not a guy I'm very familiar with, but he's. He's 22 years old and, and in A ball and pitching well there. Um, if you're telling me the cost for, for Berrios is is like Thomas Zipucky and, and JT Ginn, it's like I'm I'm doing that deal yesterday if I'm the Mets because uh, if, if that might be the best arm that winds up available, you know, like if, if you can make that deal uh, now, I mean, yeah, right? I, I feel like I have to feel like Berrios ultimately fetches more just because. Uh, we have seen so many, you know, there there have been like every season, but feels maybe amplified this year. There's just a ton of of these lingering issues with with pitchers and and injuries everywhere. Barrios is a guy who's been ex- exceptionally healthy in his career, and I just feel like that's a uh, that's a guy who's gonna get a lot of teams sniffing around if if they hold out to the deadline. So if they can't pull that off, if the Mets can't trade for Barrios. Um, and that's who I think you're right. That's the guy I should call WFAN about. Uh, who, if I'm now, if I'm going to the bargain aisle and thinking like, okay, well, we don't want to give up the prospects necessary for for Barrios. Uh, who is my who else? Yeah, I, I think then you're looking more at the rental pieces and the the two I wrote about. One is Pineda. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. same deal with the Twins, although they, they probably you know that's probably like they want one piece back and not one of your top ten prospects. Uh, or John Gray in Colorado, uh, you know. John, John Gray's kind of intriguing, right? Like he, you know, because he's a guy who it's like it's such a mystery when you're getting taking on a guy from the Rockies, right? You know, he's a he's a, a ground ball pitcher. He's gotten back to having a, a, one of the best ground ball rates in baseball. Uh, has pitched very well and in Coors Field throughout his career. His ERA is actually better in Coors than than out of it. Uh, and this year, it's almost two runs better. Uh, but uh, you know, it's a, a small sample in 2021. Um, so, you know, there's kind of that, there's that hint of optimism that, you know, like maybe we can draw more out of him because he's not pitching, uh, in altitude, uh, which, you know, doesn't just, it's not just that it's easier to hit at Coors Field. Like the field is bigger. There's more space for, for balls to drop. Oh, there's so uh, much to it. There's so much to it. That, yeah. Like the way it plays with your body, making 16 starts a year there, uh, you know, like we've talked about it with, with DeGrom back in April, whatever, when the Mets were in Colorado, like, you know, he missed his next start because he was tired from his start in Colorado, um, which, you know, maybe plays into whether he pitches in the All-Star game, which is also out there. So, well, and so there's also, there's, I don't know to what extent you've seen it, but there's like a, a lot of research showing that uh, if you look at like the home run splits for, for Rockies hitters, they are, they ultimately perform, they underperform what you should expect on the road if you like, if you look at the the park factors, like enough that um, it suggests, like probably there's enough difference in the way pitches move at altitude and sea level that it like makes those splits a little more extreme. And so, um, you know, you wonder like to what extent Gray has optimized himself for course field, perhaps at the detriment of of how he performs elsewhere. Yeah, you know, like a, a curveball that moves six inches 
at Coors moves nine at City Field or something like that. And as a hitter, you're 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 like, okay, you recognize it's a curveball. This is where I need to swing. Uh, and it the ball's you're still missing it because it's breaking more than you realize. Uh, I know Charlie Blackman's talked a lot about the difficulty of adjusting on the road as a guy who has pretty significant home road splits, uh, like historically significant. So I think Gray is a guy who probably, you know costs you like it's not one of those top 10 prospects the, the Rockies are an easier team I think for the Mets to match up with because they need pretty much anything like they're you know they're not looking to be competitive next season or at least uh, you know they should not be looking to be competitive next season in the way the Twins might in the way like the Diamondbacks who are, are you know having just this god-awful stretch uh, still have like a, de- a, a reasonable core of players that they're looking to build around like the Rockies are in pure rebuilding mode uh, so some of you know some of the Mets prospects who are farther away, where their farm system is stronger, where they have a little bit more surplus, might match up better with Colorado than with Minnesota or any other teams. That's why I think out of the guys who, who I think would be available, Gray is the one that pops to me as the likeliest to end up with the Mets. And I assume Marquez, despite uh, like what you said about the Rockies not being close, I assume Marquez is because he's, he's signed to, a, I think, a pretty reasonable uh, team-friendly ex- extension he would take quite a bit more than than probably the Mets are willing to pay. Yeah, I mean, Marquez, let me add this up. He's signed 21, 22, 23. He has signed through 2023 and then with a club option that's reasonably uh, inexpensive for 2024. Uh, So that's uh, a bit like he'll be, if he gets moved, and especially off of the way that he's pitching lately, uh, I think he'd probably be, he he might cost even more than, than Barrios. Uh, he might right. be the, like the most costly guy. And one of the things that I wrote, and I talked about it with Barrios a little bit in the story, and with Caleb Smith, who's another guy in Arizona who you can think about going after, the Mets fans know him well from Miami, uh, is like the Mets, you know, the previous regime here, you know, under the Wilpons and with Brody Van Wagen, when they made the Stroman trade, for instance, they traded prospect capital for like relatively inexpensive team control. That was a trade for Marcus Stroman's team control the next season, essentially. Right. Uh, these Mets don't have to work. They don't have to pay like a premium for controllable years uh, because they can afford free agent prices. You know, like they don't have to think, you know, those Mets in 2019, they, they got Stroman because they were, they were not going to pay Zach Wheeler. Uh, Stroman was their replacement. The Mets now, if they were thinking, we're not going to pay to replace, we're not going to pay Stroman or Syndergaard this winter. We're not going to pay a, a similar free agent that amount to replace them then they'd be more, you know, then you'd pay the prospect cost to acquire Barrios now or Caleb Smith now or Herman Marquez now. Like, you'd be willing to pay extra talent in your system because those guys are controllable. And I, I, I think they're in a spot financially that they, they'd be willing to pay more in free agency for guys than, than they were in the past. That is a really interesting point and something I, I hadn't thought about. If you were, and I'm, uh, as always, as often, at least putting you on the spot here. If you were to try to set odds on the Mets making a move significantly before the deadline, so so sometime really, and that doesn't give you a ton of time. What are the chances that by uh, the second show of next week's podcast, we are talking about a new pitcher in the Mets starting rotation? I, I don't think anything's happened. I mean, a new pitcher in the starting rotation. Does Thomas Zipucky count? <laughs> Just no, out. no. I mean, like, someone, someone outside no, the organization. Someone um, I've never seen in a Mets uniform before. Like I want it's a fresh face. Someone I can uh, I can love until I hate. Uh, yeah, I, I I would not expect that before the All Star break. I think you're probably looking at like July twentieth before anything happens. 
uh, you know, like I'd be surprised. Like an, an early deadline deal, basically. Not a, not a. I mean, I guess that's not that's not that's a that's like an oxymoron, right? Early deadline. Like, um, it's not. But you know what I'm saying? It's like 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 in part like the like the one of the first salvos of trade season rather than the last one. Is that like the best I can hope for? Yeah, like because I, I think you look at at how it's the the market is shaping up. First of all, it's it's definitely a seller's market for pitching because uh, of the state of uh, so many teams and their staffs around the game. Like you know, the Mets have the best or a top three pitching staff in baseball, and it's been that way for a long time. And they still desperately need pitching. That tells you kind of where other teams are at. Like you look at uh, basically outside of the NL West. Uh, you know, like the Brewers could use another starter. The Cubs, if they're planning to compete, uh, despite this losing streak, could really use another starter. The Cardinals, if they want to get in it, could use another starter. The Reds could use another starter. The Nationals could probably use two starters. The Braves need a starter. That's just the National League. You go into the American League, like the Red Sox could use an entirely new rotation, probably. And they've gotten their 50 and 31. Uh, so I think it's a real seller's market for starters. There's not that many really good ones available. Uh, you know, like I, I listed six, and I'm, I am sure that Mets fans got to Merrill Kelly from the Diamondbacks at the end and rolled their eyes. Like that's not someone you you get excited about bringing in. Um, and so uh, that's why I think even if you called the Rockies today and said, "Here's a package that is is probably you know 120 percent of what John Gray is going to get on July 30th," would you do it now? They'd probably say, "No, we're going to wait and we're going to see because we want to see how this market develops." Like. I think you'd really have to overpay now to get a team to to make a move now when when so much so many teams are going to give them a call in the next month. Especially with pitching just in general being as fickle as it is, I guess the flip side is if you're the team and you're holding on to the healthy starter, there's always the risk he gets hurt. But um, I think you, if you are, you have to kind of hope it's it's one of the other teams pitchers that gets hurt. And, and if it's a you know a big injury in a in a staff on a on a very competitive team and uh, things might get pretty urgent pretty quickly. We have a question that doesn't really pertain to the Mets. Um, I guess it could, uh, but it's it's more of a general baseball question. It comes from from Kevin, who is a guy I went to middle and high school with, and now uh, sometimes BS with online. Uh, actually, came out to some of my trivia events, baseball trivia stuff. Uh, he wants to know. I want to ask you for your favorite baseball movie and the baseball movies you think are most over and underrated. Uh, he says A League of Their Own is his favorite, Field of Dreams is terrible and overrated, and he thinks Little Big League is a great movie that everyone sleeps on. Uh, what is your favorite baseball movie, Tim Britt? Can I go on a, a, a small rant first? Yes, uh, and this please. Is, this is, I'll tie it back into the Mets because I wrote earlier this week about the Mets' struggles with curveballs. Uh, and so uh, someone had, had made a joke about Trouble oh, no. with the Curve, uh, which is a movie that I have never seen. Um, I, I got it as a gift for Christmas one year, and I've never seen it. And my mom, uh, who did not give me the gift, so um, you know, she she was not the one responsible for this, was just like, "Hey, why, why didn't you did you did you like that movie?" And I said, "Oh no, like I'm not going to watch it." She goes, "Well, why?" I said, because it gets like some basic premises about baseball wrong in terms of like the ability to trade draft picks and how scouting works and all that. Uh, and she goes, well, that's like, like, why would you just automatically not watch a movie for those reasons? That's ridiculous. And my mom was a high school librarian for a long time. And I said, mom, like, imagine that there was a movie written about a librarian 
but they just got the Dewey Decimal System entirely wrong. Like, <laughs> like history's not in the 900s, it's in the 200s, you know, that, that everything is just jumbled for no reason. She goes, but why would they do that? That's so ridiculous. It makes me so angry to think about. And I was like, exactly. And this, yeah. that's what this movie does to baseball. So uh, Trouble with the Curve is a movie that uh, I have never seen. Maybe it's good, but I'm not going to watch it. Um, favorite I, movie- I, I assume it's not good. I'm pretty sure it's not. I also have not seen it. I'm going to say not good. But I would I would just give it like, is are they supposed to be, is it supposed to be the major leagues? Is it like major league licensed? Or because what if this is like an alternative reality where the basics are just slightly different? <sighs> like it just needs to follow its own internal logic, right? It doesn't need to follow our logic. I, I, I My understanding is that it exists in a world where major league baseball is a thing. Uh, I'm not sure okay. if it's like licensed yeah. teams or what. Um, in terms of like favorite baseball movie, it's it's still Major League. Uh, yeah. Which I like. I <laughs> I watched it. You last. love it because it has Tom Perringer. <laughs> you know, it's it's got uh, you know Bob Uecker is just so perfect for that movie. Um, Major League and Major League Two. Uh, I, Major League Two probably not as good. I don't think it's as bad a sequel as as some others. Certainly not as bad as Major League Three. Like. Yeah, <laughs> but I watched uh, I watched Major League with my wife. Last, all respect, last... all respect to Scott Bakula. <laughs> I watched Major League with my wife uh, last summer, and she enjoyed the baseball parts. But she was like, "This Jake Taylor's coming on a little strong here to Rene Russo," and I was like, "Yeah, yeah. but you know, the eighties, <laughs> like yeah, the eighties." That was like, essentially yeah. the explanation, which I feel Have like you is met the Keith explanation. Hernandez? Yeah, <laughs> like, it's like the explanation yeah. for so many movies that that uh, we watched as kids. We're just like. If you watch them now, like, you know, it, it was the 80s. This is what every yeah. romantic well, plot line was. Um, I mean, speaking of which, have you, when was the last time you seen Bad News Bears, the original Bad News Bears? Ooh, I, I don't, it's possible I've never seen the original Bad News Bears, like, um, front so to I, back. I remember loving, like, and, and it was too, it came out before I was old enough to see it. But, like, from a pretty young age, like, you know, 11, 12, I remember just thinking it was the funniest movie. Um, I watched it recently. It does not hold up. Like, it is, like, cringy. The whole thing, it's like every single joke is just racism or, like, some sort of xenophobia. Like, it, it, the whole thing is is absurd. Um, and, and it's crazy, like, because I watched it and it was, like, it was one of these, like, MLB Network. It was a couple of years ago. It was one of these, like, MLB Network baseball classics things. And it was like, oh, this is not long for the MLB Network because, like, that movie just that was it was like place and time whenever it was made it made sense again like the um you know I, eddie murphy raw was awesome in the 80s too just like some things just don't they're just not gonna hold up over time and bad news bears like that you you gotta um it's it's almost worth watching to watch how like there's an italian kid who like has cigarettes rolled up in his sleeve and he like just like carries on like a paisan like the, every, every single character is like some sort of stereotype um and yeah it's it it does not it does not hold up i mean even like to be to be fair to bad news bears i, I don't know what year that came out that that was that's the, the original ones a while ago uh, but like D two, the Mighty Ducks had the exact same premise, <laughs> the exact same thing of like every character has to be a certain stereotype. All of the new characters in the in D two had yeah. a, a, a it specific was nineteen seventy six. The original yeah. Bad News Bears was nineteen seventy. So I say yeah, I mean, we, and, and, you can give him a pass for being nineteen seventy six. That was even earlier than I thought it was. Yeah, the movies twenty years after that were still doing much the same thing. Uh, I do, I do want to say that the Little Big League shout out. The Little Big League is an excellent movie, uh, and I realized. 
uh, at a certain point in my life that I had gone from like dreaming that I could be Henry Rowan Gartner to dreaming that I could be oh what's his last name Billy <sighs> I forget the last McKinney. name. <laughs> uh, I, I I so I'm. I'm not certain I've seen Little Big League in full. I've definitely seen portions of it on TV, but I've, I don't think I've ever seen the full movie. Um, so yeah, when when I realized like I I, I could no longer be uh, a a 12 year old big league pitcher, but that I you know maybe could be a manager. Like that was for someone who was as bad. It was Billy Haywood. Billy Haywood, someone who was okay. as bad at baseball as I was. Uh, you know, that was a, an easier thing to imagine. You do know, by the way, that uh, Pete Crow Armstrong, uh, the Mets' first-round draft pick last year, his mom played Billy Haywood's mom in Little Big League. That's wild. I did not know that. Um, I know that Houston Street's brother, Justin Street, which is spelled like Houston, uh, was in the movie called Everybody Wants Some by uh, Richard Linklater movie, which was a baseball movie, sort of, and, and pretty good. Uh, and I would say a wildly underrated baseball movie. Oh, I, I haven't seen that one, so uh, I'll have to look that up. You know, I, we, I, you know, during the uh, the initial shutdown last year where there was no baseball on, uh, I did, my wife and I, we watched not just Major League, but we watched Bull Durham, which I didn't like as much this time no, as I, I like had it. when I was a kid. It, it just... It did, wasn't wasn't great, um, and even though like you know I, I knew Durham well, it was fun to see Durham, but the the movie was whatever. Uh, and we watched uh, Field of Dreams, uh, which I know is like a very polarizing movie, and I am the person who's like you know it's fine, like it's good to watch every fifteen years now. Um, <laughs> I don't. I, I so um, I hate Kevin Costner, and it it and it is personal. <laughs> Uh, I had a very unpleasant experience interviewing Kevin Costner one time. I will, if if you ever want to dedicate a full podcast to it, we can. But it's a longer story. Um, but now, and like I was, I was probably with you on Field of Dreams, like ah, whatever. And now it's like, oh, I can't stand this movie. What are you kidding <laughs> me with this treacly nonsense? This is, you know, uh, yeah, it's it's not. And I don't know if you've heard uh, Nick Nick Offerman, Ron Swanson has like a whole bit that he did. I think on the uh, possibly on the podcast uh, about about all of like the farming inaccuracies in field of dreams. It basically sounds like a, like to a farmer, to someone who knows like the, the heartland corn farming circumstances. Uh, I think field of dreams is a lot like your mom's like librarian movie without the Dewey decimal system. <laughs> I could, I could see that. Uh, and also I do think like watching it last year, uh, imagining the character Terrence, you know, James Earl Jones character, Terrence Mann, uh, who now plays for the Clippers, uh, like that character having the relationship with baseball that he does just seems uh, wholly impossible um, that you would have uh, this African-American activist who grew up in the 1960s uh, loving baseball to that extent uh, and having no qualms and loving like 1910s, 1920s baseball uh, just doesn't seem uh, plausible to me. Yeah. What was, what was missing in 1910s and 1920s baseball? It's, you know, it's a funny, funny thing about that. Uh, Terrence Mann, also the name of a, a great, I believe, a late great Broadway star. Um, another uh, one last, uh, Major League is also my favorite baseball movie. Really, really good. And I haven't seen this. I don't think I've seen it since I saw it in theaters. Uh, but I would say criminally underrated baseball movie involving the Mets. Uh, have you ever seen the movie Frequency? Oh yeah, yeah, I've seen Frequency. I, I, I think I had Frequency on VHS. Uh, when, when what I was, a good movie! When I was a kid. Yeah. What a, like, 
Yeah, that's a great movie, and it, and it is all about the the nineteen sixty nine Mets, and there's a time travel element. That's like that movie was like if they when someone sat down in the in like the the Hollywood boardroom, and they were like, hey, we we know this guy Ted Berg. Like, how do we make a movie to target that guy as the audience? And they nailed it. Dennis Quaid. It's got Dennis Quaid in it. it, it I think it has Dennis Quaid in it. Yeah, it does. Uh, and it really hammers okay. home it really hammers home the improbability of Al Weiss's World Series performance in nineteen sixty nine. Uh like that is a key plot point that Al Weiss hits a home mm-hmm. run in the nineteen sixty nine World Series. Uh and when I first saw the movie I didn't know uh who Al Weiss was. Uh and now that I do, uh it, you know, I, I I learned about uh his his dramatic performance in that series uh because of that movie. Well, uh, yeah, I w- that would be a, a the Metrospective podcast recommendation and a consensus recommendation to watch Frequency if you haven't seen it, which, again, I haven't seen. So if there's, like, deeply racist stuff going on Frequency, just keep in mind that I saw it in, like, 1998 when it came out. <laughs> and I think, a, I think a very young Michael Cera is in that movie. I don't think he has a speaking part, but... For real? Uh, yeah, I think he's, like, one of the kids who gets carried around the field late in the game, late, late in the movie. Huh. Um, that is a that is a good tidbit. Um, thank you to Kevin for the question. Uh, thank you to everyone listening for listening. Please, uh, if you can, rate, review, subscribe, do all of those things in all of the places. We will be back next week with some more and ideally some more Mets victories and and some better feelings about the back end of the of the pitching staff. Tim, peace out. Adios.